Today we're going to be in Psalm 24. If you're following along in the Bibles underneath your seats, it's on page 428. Psalm 24. The the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your gates, Heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City. And if you're with us uh, for the first time, and we just want you to feel welcomed, um, you caught us uh, on Easter, whether you knew that or not, it's Easter. Um, that explains more pastels um, I'm wearing. Um, but we're really glad you're here. Uh, we are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, which gives hope to the hopeless. Um, it exposes all our false strengths. It, uh, it actually casts the things that we consider to be strong and secure. Uh, when they come against the resurrection of Jesus, they are pale in, in comparison. And uh, you came on, on a great Sunday, not just because we're wearing pastels, uh, not just because uh, we had both a trombone and a uh, uh, violin, fiddle, violin, maybe. Uh, depends, I think it depends on what song you're playing, uh, whether it's a fiddle or violin. Uh, but because we get to celebrate uh, testimonies of new life in, in baptism. And, um, man, if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God made man, God incarnate, can change you like they change the people who are being baptized. We uh, are not in a typical Easter uh, passage. Psalms 24 is not typical uh, but I think you'll agree with me that while we get to the end of it, I think you're going to see really the, the heart of, of the Easter message. You know, and this is really just where it falls. Like, uh, the Psalms are our escape from non-creativity, although they are the element of creativity in the Scriptures. Like, we, uh, when we're not in series, we go to the Psalms. And so we're, the next Psalm was Psalms 24. And so when we were looking at what to do next, I was like, well, let's just try Psalms 24. And, uh, and I'm not real creative, so that's what we did. And I think it actually gets to the heart of the Easter message. What do we need to do? What can we do to save ourselves? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? You know, um, Jesus... Growing up, he would have had all the same 150 psalms that we have in our Bibles, and he would have known them well. He would have, in the same way that if you're not familiar with the psalms, like you get an eavesdrop on someone's like heartfelt prayer, like soul-felt song as they go to God, and you're going to have emotions that range from like, God, I don't know where you are, I don't know what to do, everything has just gone to hell. Where are you? Until you turn the page a couple and you have like psalms that express the fullness of God right there at our hands. You know, so many of the psalms actually are depicting the life of Jesus. You know, I mean, if you were looking uh, at this, you would find a lot of psalms that depict and spoke of Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection. Such as Psalms 2. I mean, it speaks of political leaders conspiring against the Messiah. And that happened to Jesus in Matthew 26. 
or Psalms 22. It gives a graphic description of Jesus' execution upon the cross 700 years before crucifixion was even developed by the Persians. You know, it was developed by the Persians, but then it was perfected for about 500 years by the Romans until the 4th century when Constantine outlawed it because of its brutality. I mean, read it. Psalms 22, it, it couldn't be talking about anything else. Or Psalm 69, verse 21, when it predicts that Messiah would be offered gall mixed with wine while he was dying, which we can read about that in Matthew 27, verse 34. Or Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 8 through 10, where it comes and it says, The Messiah would die, but his, he would not be left in Sheol, nor would his body decay. I mean, poetically, when we break that down, it sounds like resurrection to me. But if we looked at this psalm, if we're trying to figure out the life-giving message of what this means, you know, a helpful thing when you look at the Old Testament and you're looking through a gospel lens, how does the gospel help us understand the Old Testament? You know, there's really four ways that it patterns Christ, that we see Christ in it. And so one is a pattern. It shows us a pattern that Christ would fulfill. The other is promise. It prophesies and promised that Jesus would come. The Messiah will one day come and he'll do something. Or Jesus himself is present. You know, at night um, I sit with Cruz and we read through the gospel storybook. And so it's just uh, all these stories from the Bible put together, just uh, a little bit easier to read. And we just read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, that got really exciting because there's fun names. And so we kind of would say those names back and forth to each other. And then you get to Nebuchadnezzar. And, I mean, that's like the funnest name. And so we're talking through those things. Um, and, uh, you know, they get thrown into the, into the furnace because they won't bow down. And uh, we kind of go back and forth. I'm like, hey, you're going to bow down? He's like, I'm not going to bow down. I'm going to burn you. And then I tickle him. Um, that's fire. And... Uh, and so they get thrown in there, but then, you know, the guards die, everyone around them dies, but then there's four people in there, and he just asks, who's the fourth guy? I'm like, hey, man, I think it's Jesus. I don't know about you. And he's like, yeah, you're probably right. I'm like, yeah, I'm right. <laughs> Got a degree in this thing. And so sometimes you see the presence. I mean, you can read, especially in Hebrews, but you read through uh, the, the New Testament. They are very Christological, and they show all kinds of things. Hey, this is the presence of Jesus. This was the presence of Jesus. And if you've read the New Testament and you missed it, you need to read more carefully. But then what we see over and over, and this is what Psalms 24 is, we see a problem. We see a problem that only Jesus, the Messiah, can fix. And that Psalms 24 is like the problemed category. It is like the ultimate problem. Who can ascend to where God is? Who can go up the hill of the Lord? Who can get there? Yet what keeps us down? What keeps us away? What do we do when we realize that we are unfit to walk up that hill? This psalm, it's all about my redemption here and now. This psalm is all about the redemption of all things. This psalm starts in creation and works to the overflow of the victorious entrance of the King. Like this psalm is actually like almost walking through the whole of Scripture, starting with creation, getting to the here and now, personifying it so that we know who can do this, and then getting to the end of the King coming in. And oh, rise the gates, oh, rise the ancient doors, who comes? The King of glory. This psalm is about how Jesus ascended the hill of the Lord for me. And we're going to look at this psalm um, in three scenes. And so the first one is here. Uh, that's how we're going to center it. The next one is who. And then the third one is how. I know, compelling, huh? And so here, who, and how. And uh, when I say it fast like that, I feel like Dr. Seuss wrote my notes here. Here, who, and how. Uh, but here we go. First, here. And we're talking about redemption. And so the redemption of here. God's plan for redemption 
is for all that he made to be good again. It's about here. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell there. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Like it's talking about here. It's talking about here, you know, in verse 2, look at it again. You see two things that come out. It says, founded it upon the seas and established upon the rivers. And so this is an appeal to creation. And like in the Hebrew thought, like anytime you talked about seas and rivers, like that is like chaos and unfit for survival. It is talking about something that's not suitable for us to live in. But God has founded us a place to live in the unsuitable. Um, a mini-series, uh, the National, Ge- National Geographic, they put out a mini-series called Mars. And so it, it's kind of weird. It's like, it's like half a uh, documentary of all that we're doing to try to get to Mars, and then it's like half uh, science fiction of what we would do when we got there, and the answer is we would all die when we get there. Like, I mean, just normal things. Like, they're trying to have breakfast, and something breaks, and then it's chaos, and everyone's dying. And, like, really, like, my conclusion, my strong conclusion about this is we shouldn't go there. Like, that's my conclusion. Like, we shouldn't go there. I mean, they get real excited because there's evidence of liquid water, and they believe that there's probably ice, you know, frozen water there. And I, I look around, I'm like, man, we got a lot of water around here. Like, I turn my faucet on, I leave it on for days. I could, I don't, I don't, I don't, I care. But, I mean, I could, but, like, I mean, we want to get there. And I'm like, man, we're going to get there, we're going to die. It's not suitable for life. But what, what do we see here? Is we see suitable for life all around us. You know, God created all that we see. This psalm says it is his, and all that is in it is is his. You know, actually, if you have your Bible, keep your finger here and flip back to page one. Because, I mean, when he, when he talks about creation, he's going back to Genesis 1 and 2. He's talking about all the goodness that God created. And, like, it's even important that we see how it's depicted. Because, I mean, like, you know, some scholars, they get real critical. Like, man, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, they sound different. And there's a different order. And so then, like, man, there must be contradiction. But there is no contradiction. Genesis 1 is poetic. It is a song. Genesis 2 is the narrative of what happened. Like if you read it, that's how it reads. I mean, in Genesis 1, you have like kind of rhythm and rhyme and measure. You have repetition. And if you just think about it, you can hear like a jazz beat kind of dropping behind it. Like, I mean, listen to this. Like it it goes on and on. It says, you know, so like verse 1, you know, when it says the earth, and this is actually... We're, we're not to Genesis 1, but keep your finger there. And so the, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. Like, it is a picture of everything that's happened in Genesis 1 and 2. Like, in Genesis 1, you look at verse 3. I mean, what you see is it says, God said, let there be light. And then he lit up the sky. And there was. And then he says, it is good. I mean, if you picture that with kind of a jazzy feel, like, it is good would be that deep, like, boys to men voice. You know, it's like, girl, it is good. You know, I mean, I can't do it. I wish I could. I mean, it'd be incredible. But, I mean, and then you can just imagine, like, kind of like a groove happening right after that. And then you get to verse 6, and you see it, and it says, And God said, let there be rivers, streams, oceans, and seas. Separating them will be prairies, valleys, mountains. And then whatever the Flint Hills are, it will separate them. And then he said, it is good. And you can imagine the groove that happened after that. And then in verse 11, it goes on. He said, let there be fruit and vegetables and lagoons. I mean, he doesn't say lagoons, but whatever lagoons are, that's where it came in. And then he goes on. He says, man, there will be gluten for the intolerant, and there will be peanuts to kill your modern kids. And then he says, it is good. And then it grooves. And, like, this is what you need to know. Like, that verse is for you vegans. That verse is for you. Like this world grows food for you, and we know, we know you're here judging us. I mean, we know. But not to worry, keto people, there's a verse for you too. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, and God said, let there be Angus beef. I mean, he said livestock, but he meant Angus beef. And then he said, and then there was, 
and it was good, and now let's groove. I mean, over and over, it was building with this repetition to say, all that you see, God delighted in it. It is good. That means this world matters. You know, it it keeps going, and then it crescendos. In verse 26, where God turns to himself in the Trinitarian God that he is, and he says, let us make man and woman. And he did. And then like the jazz song turns to like a boys to men song, because then we get the command where it's like the I will make love to you command in verse 28, but it comes out as be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It doesn't quite sing because you can't say these five words, I swear to you. It's more like these Eleven words, I swear to you. And then, guys, it gets even better. If you look at verse 28, then after it gets all boys to men, it says, let's go fishing. Look, right there. It says, dominion over the fish. Like God made here suitable for life. He made it good. He made it good. And when he got to baking you and me, he didn't say it is good. He said it is very good. See, there's a, there's a Christian kind of theology that kind of is just hell and brimstone. It's the idea that God's just going to burn this world up and so it doesn't matter. I mean, I just don't see that in the Scriptures. What I see is God looking at His creation. What I see in Romans is all of creation moaning, waiting for the adoption of man, waiting for us to surrender and find salvation, and then it's released from its groaning. Like the redemption plan of God is to restore the goodness of everything that He made. It's redemption for here. But sometimes we look around and we don't, we don't see that it is good. Sometimes we see scars. Sometimes we look around and we see everything stained and tainted with sin and broken. Sometimes we look within and that's all we see. And we forget the theology of creation that this psalm starts in, that he says he took what was unlivable and he found it to make it livable. And he made room for you and I and everything that he made was good. And then when he came to you, he said, it is very good. You know, it's actually really, really clear. I look back at the text. Like he doesn't just say, yeah, yeah, God made everything and it was good. The, the, the psalmist really wants to unpack it. So he says, I really mean everything. And so the first, like he uses three different phrases and words. The first is he uses the earth and the world. He says it twice. Look at verse 1. He says, the earth and the world is God. It is the Lord. That means this world belongs to God. He created it to be good and he will redeem all that is broken in it. The resurrection has more to do than just you, but in another sense, it has everything to do with you. You know, I mean, we look at this world, and in our culture, it's easy to think of this world as an Eden that's unbroken and good, and like humanity is more like a cancer infecting the host of this world, but it is also broken. I mean, think about droughts and flooding and storms and stagnant diseases and the terrors that come and go. I mean, think about tsunamis that crush and tornadoes that rip apart. Like, there is things that are broken in this world. The sun gives life and it gives cancer too. Like, there's a sense of, like, we still see its goodness, but there's a sense where we also know, man, it's not quite right. God wants to redeem this world. But it doesn't just say this world. It also, if you look at verse 1 again, it says this phrase, the fullness thereof is the Lord's. Like that means like all non-human life. Like that means like plant life and animal life. That means all that we see that contains in this world is good that He created, that He wants to redeem, and it's waiting for the sons of man. It's waiting for us to find full redemption. You know, my, my second-born daughter, she, um, man, she loves, she just loves wildlife. 
Like, I mean, she is always connecting snails and bugs and slugs, and she's always asking us to look up what it eats. And, you know, she puts it in a jar. I'm like, man, you put that in a jar, you're going to kill that thing. And she's like, no, I'm going to love it. You're going to love it to death. We were, we were cleaning out her bed, and we found a jar of snail shells in her bed. And we don't know if they went in there alive and she was like cuddling with them or if they were already dead. We don't know and we don't want to know, but it makes us worried. We don't have bed bugs. We have bed slugs, you know. I mean, she just loves all these things. Man, it was, it was a while ago. Uh, she was in her backyard. Our neighbor's dog was in her backyard. And our neighbor's dog picked up a little baby bunny rabbit. And she like said, no, drop it. And that dog opened its mouth and dropped that bunny, and she picked it up and saved Junior's life. We named it Junior. And I was certain it was going to die, but we nursed it back to health, and it was thriving. And then we had another problem. We had a baby bunny rabbit, Junior, that was thriving. And I don't know if you know about bunnies, but, like, every hop they take, they poop. I mean, every hop. And so we were like... What, running around the bunny, and it is hopping, and it is pooping, and we're like, we got to get rid of this. So we use the wild crats. I mean, they're saying it's living free in the wild. We're like, man, Junior has to live free, and in the wild, Junior wants to find a little bunny wife. And so we made an outdoor habitat. Uh, I was doing it. We made an outdoor habitat to release Junior into the wild, and now every cottontail bunny we see is Junior. Junior's wife, or a son and daughter of Junior and Junior's wife. Every. This is years later. We're like, you think that's junior? I'm like, I don't, I don't know, maybe. But there's also brokenness in the animal kingdom. See, I'm, I'm betting junior didn't make it long. Because we also have an enormous owl in our neighborhood. And I'm t- wildlife is great, man. I was running, and uh, all of a sudden, I was not on the sidewalk, I was next to the sidewalk. And I see a squirrel uh, kind of running, which is serious because I was running with my dog, and my dog, you know, wants to go after the squirrel. But before my dog go after the squirrel, that owl swooped down and snatched up that little squirrel, and the squirrel made a little noise that sounded like, I don't like this, and then it flew off with a squirrel tail, like, waving in the back, and I was like, that's how Junior went down right there. (laughs) I mean, that is a big owl. It is eating something. But when you look at this, I mean, she sees so much. She sees so much in the created order of non-human life that is beauty and that is good, and yet it's just not quite right. There's so much that is broken. Psalms 24, it says that this world and all that is in it was created by God, and it is His, and one day He will fully redeem it. He will heal all that is broken. But it doesn't just talk about this world. It doesn't just talk about all life that's non-human in this world. It also talks about you and me. Like, look at there, at the end of verse 1, it says, Those who dwell there within. It says all humanity belongs to God. He created it to be good. And He will one day redeem the brokenness of it. See, after God created land, sea, stars, and animals, He declared them to be good. But after He created you and me, He declared you to be very good. The pinnacle of His creation. The top of His love. He looked at you and he said, you are very good. And every once in a while, don't you just see something beautiful in people? You see, if we're creating the image of God, that means there's something in you and there's something in me that's not going to be fully known unless it comes out and it is seen here. Like you hold a key to showing this world something about His nature, something about His strength and dignity and moral rightness and His creativity, something about His caring heart. He put in you. My oldest daughter, she is a reader. And, uh, man, it's something I, I kind of share with her. Like, we love to read stories. Like, and so we started reading, reading the Wing Feather saga. And, man, it's just this beautiful. It's just heroic. And it's just, you know, 
self-sacrificing and good and there's evil and there's good and we're fighting a cause and people die along the way and there's brokenness all around and you're reading and you cry. I mean, I love reading it with her and while we read it, I love asking her questions about how it makes her feel. Does it bring any hopes and dreams, any ambitions? Like, what do you think about that? What do you think it even looks like? We got the last book in the series, and it's over 500 pages. She crushed it in like three days. I was on chapter two. She crushed it 500 plus pages in like three days. And so then my whole family was making fun of me, like, oh, your you know, nine-year-old daughter, she read the whole book, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, listen, guys, I have a job. You know, I have to go to a job and work, and then I'm tired at night. And I was, this was a proud father moment. Cruz looked at me. And he said, well, maybe you could try being tough and just staying up late and reading it. And it was a moment where I was like, I am doing something right. And then I thought, that is not me. That is a divine attribute of God. Why don't you just suck it up and read? But I still have a job and I still get tired, so I'm not done yet. Um, but every once in a while. See, all the coverage we get is about the brokenness of humanity and the sins of humanity and the evil of humanity. But every once in a while, don't you see something beautiful? See, there's, there's no doubt. You know, this, this Psalms, what it says is that the world and all that is in it and all of humanity was created by God and it and all that we see and even us belongs to him. Like, do you know what that means? That means you matter. That means that this world matters. That means that the work of your hands, the toil of your life matters. That means that your relationships matter. And it also means that ultimately all of that belongs to him. And he has put you to steward it. And he wants to redeem it all. And he wants to set it right. It means here matters. It is the here of redemption. You know, the word redemption, it's not, that's not in this text, but the word of redemption, it means to buy back, or, or to say it another way, it means to purchase back its original glory. Something has been lost, and God wants to purchase it back because he made it good, and he made you very good. Do you see, like when you look around at all those things, you see some goodness, but don't you also see the tarnished stain of sin on this world? It's broken. Even for all of its beauty, it's still broken. It's not quite right. I mean, do you see the tarnished stain of sin in your relationships? Like, there's broken. Like, in the moments of them being at their best, there's still something that's just off. Do you see the tarnished stain of sin in your soul? Like there's just something not quite right. It's not right in what I do. It's not right in what I say. It's not even right in what I hope for and what I trust. And if we go to verses 3 and 4, that's exactly what the psalmist says. Like, like, look at verse 3. It brings a question, and this is the important question that's hard. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And so we move from this idea of here, the redemption of here, and we go to the redemption of who, and it has this question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It's about how do we escape the brokenness of this world down here right now? How do we transcend to wholeness and goodness? How do we move up that hill? See, God is altogether good and whole, and we're just off. We're falling short on our best efforts and needing to reach above where he is. And so it says, who shall ascend that Lord? It goes on in verse 3. Look at it. It says, who can get there? Who shall stand in his holy place? And in like our best moment, like our optimist moment, we're like, man, I can. I paid my taxes on time, or I filed for an extension. It's due October 15th. I mean, I can but then we just live out a little bit longer and we realize, man, I can't. And so this is the who of redemption, like sinful who's can't transcend to where God is. Sinful who's can't walk up the hill. And so then it gives us a case study. And look at verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands, it answers the question, who can stand before God? 
Who can transcend that hill? Who can get there? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear to what's deceitful. And so let's just work through that. First, he who has clean hands. Like this speaks to our actions. Like, what have you done? It speaks to the doings of who we are. Like, have you ever done anything selfish at the benefit for yourself and at the loss for someone else? Knowingly. Not accidentally. Knowingly. Like things that can be acts of omission or acts of commission. I mean, they can be things that you did on purpose or things you should have done that you didn't do. Like, it's saying that we have to have clean hands. Like, it's really pretty straightforward. Only those who have hands that have not been stained by sin, only those can transcend that hill. Um, in high school, uh, we read uh, Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. Um, and the only reason I read it is because we actually read it out loud in class. Um, and so... Uh, for a moment, I was Lady Macbeth, and I remember reading it. And so, I mean, but in that, like, if you remember the story, like, Macbeth, it's about a Scottish general named Macbeth. Um, and uh, he gets the, the soothsayers, like these three witches, prophesy over him and say, hey, listen, you're going to become, like, the ruler. And so he gets haunted by this, and his wife kind of plays on. And so his ambitions and his wife push him to eventually kill King Duncan. And then it's about the hauntedness of his soul. And dirty hands are a major implication of that. Like, just to read you a little bit, like you have, and this is a modern translation because it's easier to understand. And it has this, it says, where is that knocking coming from? I mean, what is heard is this internal knocking. And if you ever see the play, like it's off stage, but it's only that they hear, it's this hauntingness. Where is that knocking coming from? What's happening to me that I'm frightened at every noise? As he looks at his hands. Whose hands are these? Ha, they're plucking out my eyes. Will all the water in the ocean wash this blood from my hand? No, instead my hands will stain the seas scarlet, turning the green waters red. You hear the guilt of what his hands have done? His hands, they aren't proclaiming exoneration. They're proclaiming guilt. Lady Macbeth, his wife, she comes and says, My hands are as red as yours, but I would be ashamed if my heart were as pale and weak. And then you hear the knocking within again. I hear someone knocking at the south entry. Let's go back to our bedroom. A little water will wash away the evidence of our guilt. It's so simple. You've lost your resolve. And then you hear knocking again. It goes on and says, listen, there's more knocking. Put on the nightgown in case someone comes and sees that we're awake. Snap out of your days. Do you hear the guilt of what we've done? It's haunting me. Now I'm on edge. I'm afraid people are looking for me. I'm going to be found out. Like it keeps coming. Listen, there's more knocking. Looking at their hands, they're proclaiming guilt, not exoneration. And then it goes on and you have Macbeth. He says, rather than have to think about my crime, I'd prefer to be completely unconscious. Knocking again. Wake Duncan with your knocking. I wish you could. Like all of Macbeth, it's about the sins of my hands haunting me. Do you ever feel that? What I did? What was done? Like in a moment we justify it. We say, well, well, they did that, so of course that's okay. I would do this. Any reasonable person would do that. Are you sure those justifications are going to stand up to God? You see, that the hands, the staining of the hands, the clean hands, like all the things that I've done are leaving a mark. They're leaving a stain. They're leaving a scar. Every keystroke and mouse click that was wrong has left its mark upon my hands. Every doorknob that opened a door that I shouldn't have gone in has branded its mark upon my hands. Our hands tell more than enough to keep us from ascending that hill, that mountain. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only those with clean hands. 
And if you think you did good on that, it gets far, far worse. It also says, those who have a pure heart. Like, look at verse 4. It says, if clean hands weren't enough, the psalm just goes on to say, you have to have a pure heart. I mean, good Lord, let's just stop. That means the inner part of your life has to have the right motives. That means the inner thoughts of your life have to be a right. They can't be selfish. They have to be self-giving. You know, Jesus speaks to this in Luke 12, and it's terrifying. In Luke 12, verse 2 to 3, it says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. <laughs> How do you like them apples, right? Psalms 24, it says the only people who can ascend the hill of the Lord, the only who's who can go up there are those with clean hands. They don't have the stains of our doings. And those who have pure hearts, who don't contain darkness of our thoughts. And then it condemns our failing hopes and our failing lips. And so let's jump down first to our failing lips. It says someone who hasn't sworn deceitfully. And this just means lied or misrepresented. Or this just means someone who hasn't you know, shaded somebody else. Or someone who hasn't given false representation of events to make them look better. It's deceitfulness. I took my oldest three to see Solo. And, uh, you know, before we went, we stuffed our pockets with snacks, and we were going, and, you know, we've seen Solo, we know he's a smuggler. And so Quinn, she's real inquisitive, she was like, hey, what, what is a smuggler? And I was like, man, someone who sneaks in contraband. What's contraband? Something that's illegal, you know? And then, I, you know, I went like, well, I mean, sometimes it's illegal, but it's still right. Like, I mean, you have situations like sneaking Bibles into countries. It's still contraband. It's still wrong, but it's right. And she's like, so are we smugglers? <laughs> I'm like, nah, girl, man, that's different. You know what I mean? <laughs> All that's right in this world um, but our hands, hearts, and lips, they condemn us to keep us from ascending the hill of the Lord. But that just points to the stains of our doings. It doesn't just point to the darkness of our hearts or the deceit in our words. It also points to the futility of our hopes. Look at verse 4 again. It tells us that we can't have lifted up our soul to what is false. That means that we haven't put our hopes or our, or our confidence into other counterfeit saviors. We haven't put our things, you know, everything into something else that will fix us. We haven't trusted recognition, more money, less cursing or less lying or being kind or being understood or a better sex life or a new hobby. We haven't trusted those things to make us right. We haven't told ourselves, man, if I'll just be more generous or more sacrificial or donate more of my time or more of my blood, then I'll just be okay. Or we haven't said, man, I'll just be more disciplined. I'll memorize. I'll read more. I'll do more things in the church. Like we haven't hoped in those things. It says that we haven't given ourselves to hope in other things. I mean, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39. See, they were disciplined, they were religious. And he says, Listen, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will find eternal life. That means you think by knowing them, loving them, memorizing, living by them, you'll be saved. But then he says, but I tell you, they are all about me. I'm what saved. I'm what redeemed. He says, they point to me. And so, in a systematic way, the Psalms, it says, look at your hands. Look on the inside Look at what you say and what you do. Look at the inner dialogue. Look at what you hope in. Can you ascend that hill? And then it gets something kind of weird. like it, Something mysterious move happens in verse 5. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, he. That's very singular. That's very, very clear. He. There, there's no uh, additional information with this. It is clear in the Hebrew. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Now, I mean, that's not surprising. Like, it's really common to say, hey, who can do this? Well, he can do it. And that he can represent a lot of different he's and she's. But then it includes in the he a generation. Look at verse 6. Such is this. Such is the generation of those who seek him. And so this he is doing, and those, the generation, the people who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Like it moves to this representative thing, like who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who has clean hands, a pure heart, who hasn't trusted wrongly, who hasn't been deceitful. He can do it. And then those who trust in he get to follow in. And so all of a sudden there's this shift. Listen to what one of my commentaries say about this. It says, what is striking about this verse is that suddenly we're not reading about an individual anymore, but about an entire group of people. One man kept, God, kept God's requirements completely and, per, and perfectly. And an entire race of humanity was made like him. Spurgeon said, our Lord Christ could ascend the hill of the Lord because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And if we by faith are conformed to his image, we too shall enter in. There's a he who could ascend the hill. And then there's a generation that can trust in that he. The first thing we saw is that there's a here to redemption. God created everything good and he wants to redeem all that is broken. There's a who to redemption. It is only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who hasn't lifted up his soul to another, who's never sworn falsely with his lips. And then finally we end, there's a how to redemption. And verses 7 through 10 are clear. You have to let this he in. And it names the he. You have to let the he in. He is the king of glory. You have to let him in. Look at verse 7. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He has to be let in. Verse 8, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The king of glory has to be let in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Like the how of redemption is letting the king of glory come in. You know, some uh, theologians, they argue that this was um, an entrance for the Ark of the Covenant. Like it was a ceremony where they say, lift up, O gates. You know, lift up, O ancient doors. And that the king of glory come in. But the problem is this doesn't talk about the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't mention that. Like It could clearly mention that. It's talking about a he. It's talking about this he who could ascend the hill of the Lord. It's talking about a he that all of us were disqualified from. None of us have the right hands. It's talking about a he that is identified as a Lord, strong in battle, the king of glory. You know, one thing I'm sure of is when it talks about gates and when it talks about ancient doors, like there's a lot of questions of what it's talking about. It's talking about what gates or what doors or, you know, what's going on. Uh, This is what I'm sure of. Gates and doors are put in place to keep things out. Gates and doors are put in place to keep privacy and security. And then we defend those gates and doors. And so when it comes to this, of how do we find redemption, we have to let the king of glory in. It means that there are gates and doors of our life. And it doesn't just say door, it says ancient door. This door has been in place for a long time. And it doesn't want to let him in. It doesn't want to let him in. Like, the gospel is everything that we celebrate on Easter. There is an ancient door in our life that we hope in, that we trust in, that we hide behind. And so those could be described in the things that disqualified us because of what we hope in. There's an ancient door in our life that has been founded since Genesis 3. And the how of redemption is we have to open that ancient, strong, sturdy door, and we have to say, come in, King of glory. 
See, there's, there's a lot of Bible. There's a lot of generation that, that span a lot of people being born and people being died. There's a lot of years that go from, Gen, uh, from Genesis 3 to the present time now, and then we continue until Revelation. And this door stands. You know, the hill of the Lord is often used to describe where Jesus was crucified. He carried his cross up that hill, and upon that hill the sins of the world were atoned for. They were redeemed. Letting the king of glory in, opening that ancient door, is looking at Jesus and saying, what you did was enough. Opening the ancient door and letting the king of glory in is looking at Jesus and it's saying, you have satisfied God and you are worthy of my trust. And when other things compete in treasuring, I will not treasure them. I will lay them down and fight them and I will treasure you. That is letting the king of glory in. It is declaring with your heart and your lips that Jesus is king and his resurrection is everything. He wasn't just a moral teacher. He didn't come to be an example that you should follow. There's all kinds of things that we can't follow an example on. He came to ascend a hill that you couldn't ascend. He walked up the hill of Calvary, and upon that hill, on the Lord's hill, He bled and He died, and He said, it is finished so that we can trust and treasure and we can find security. You know, jumping thousands of years ahead, or roughly a thousand years ahead from this Psalms, we come to after the resurrection of Jesus. After the resurrection of Jesus, you had all the disciples, and they were in one room, and they were waiting around. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared, and he said, listen, believe, I've been resurrected, believe and follow. And everybody was there minus one, minus Thomas. And they come back and they tell Thomas, man, you're not going to believe it. We were in this room. The door was locked. Jesus showed up. And then he ate with us. And that was weird. I mean, glad we had food. And he says, listen, he was there. And Thomas says, man, I'm not going to believe it unless I see the scars in his hands and the scars in his side. Man, when I think about the things that my hands say, you know, even on a lesser level, like I look at my hands and I see scars on my hands. Like, I have a scar right here, and it's because uh, I saved my dog in a dog fight. Hayes, our dog, our good dog before we had Charlie, Hayes, our good dog, got in a dog fight, and they were fighting, they were kind of close together, and all of a sudden that dog, you know, he was a Weimaraner, so he had a dog tail, that dog just bit his tail like this, just, ah, and it was like, Argh. and I was like, you can't take his tail, and so I grabbed that dog's mouth, and I pry it open, and Hayes kind of runs off, and then I ended up just picking up Hayes, and just like running away, and I got done, and I'm looking at his tail, and I'm like, man, there's blood everywhere, it was from me, and so I'm proud of this scar, I saved my dog. Like, not the dog we have, the good dog. I saved my dog. And then right next to it, I, I have two scars that go these two fingers. And that's because I tried to cut my fingers off on a table saw. All the great woodworkers have lost something, all right? All of them. And so I was just trying. It was actually my kid's fault. I'll explain it later. But, like, these scars, they tell a story. The scars on Jesus' hand tell a story, and it is the greatest story you could ever hear. And so at that moment, Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see the scars. And then in John 20, verse 25, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of his nails, and put my fingers in the marks of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. All the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, seen me, and yet they believe. When we say, 
what hands will walk up that hill? You have two options. Either your hands will speak for you or the hands of Jesus will speak for you. And if you submit, and if you say, I want the hands of Jesus to speak for me, it says you have eternal life. That there will be found no condemnation. Those hands speak of love and forgiveness and new life and adoption and made whole. And Romans says all of creation is waiting for that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, um, as we move into communion, as we come forward, as we proclaim this is what we believe, as we bring all our doubts and all our insecurities and all our failings, all the things that our hands have done and all the brokenness inside of us, we're proclaiming we trust the hands of the Lord and His scars more than we trust our hands. And so here at Free City, the way that we take communion is we start on the bread side and we tear a piece away and then we dip it either into the wine or the grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware and the grape juice is in the glassware. And we remember it was because of his death and resurrection that we have hope. We remember. And so if you're a Christian, we we invite you to join us in communion. Regardless of your background, regardless of your doubts that you might carry, regardless of how good of a Christian you think you might be or might not be, we invite you to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus through communion. If you're not a Christian and you're just kind of kicking the tires and wondering about Christ, um, man, we're going to put some prayers up on the screen. We're not trying to trick you or confuse you. We just want to give clarity. And like, if you're worried about being singled out, don't be. Because people wait and they pray, they wait till the line dies down, and people are crawling all over other people. I mean, it's chaotic, and maybe that's fitting because our life is chaotic, I don't know. But we come down the middle rows, and we celebrate the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's what we hope in. We hope in those hands. But there's another motion that is maybe more for you. Sometimes we look down at our hands and we're haunted. Sometimes we look inside our hearts and we're haunted. Sometimes, just like Macbeth, we think, man, if I could take all the water of the ocean, it wouldn't make me clean. It would stain the water instead. Sometimes we're haunted. And we can be Christians and we're still haunted by what was done to us or what we've done. And there might be another motion that's important. There might be a motion that just moves back behind the black screen and someone will be there who can pray for you where you can just say, I need you to pray for me. You can tell them as much or as little. And they're, they're going to do this. They're going to pray boldly. They're going to ask for more than we could imagine or dream because the Lord tells us to. They're going to ask for it right now. And they're going to trust the goodness of God. Father, I pray that you would give us the right motion, whether we sit, whether we move, whether we go back. Um, And Lord, we want to, all those motions can celebrate the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of the resurrection of Jesus. And so, Lord, we want to trust your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.